All right, check, check. Hello, Will. Well, good morning, church. Y'all are rather awake and responsive. That's nice. Um, not that you're not. Please turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs is near the center of your Bible. If you open up to Isaiah, like I always do, it's just a few books to the left. Today's sermon is a part of our summer series on um, a different number of topics covered in Proverbs, and today we're going to be looking at the topic of money. Uh, now, the book of Proverbs, and in fact, the entire Bible has a lot to say about this important topic, and often touchy topic, um, but we're going we're gonna to look at Proverbs today to, to glean what, what truths and wisdom it has for us. Uh, for those taking notes, the, the title of this sermon is Wisdom's Enduring Wealth. Uh, we're going to read Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verse 4. Now, today's sermon is going to use a reference to a number of different texts, so this isn't one of your typical sermons. This is topics. We're looking at what does Proverbs as a whole say about this? What's one main thread? So consider this verse, chapter 11, verse 4. It's kind of a teaser trailer of what's to come. Um, so we'll read this verse, and then we'll pray for the preaching of God's word. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4. This is God's word. Riches... Do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Let's read that again. Riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we are humbled that you would speak to us, that you would Use men over the centuries that you have, you have designed and orchestrated in history to write these words for us today, that you have a specific, specific truth you want us to grasp and apply to our hearts. So Lord, I pray that you would do that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be active to make our hearts inclined to hearing your truth, ready to apply it. Lord, we pray that you would, you would show us your paths, that you would, you would teach us your ways, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The wealthiest person alive today is Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos. I hadn't heard his name before I looked it up online. But as of Friday, he apparently is worth $113 billion. Yeah, billion dollars, according to Forbes. Um, he owns the Washington Post entirely and Blue Origin which is an aerospace company that basically makes rocket ships commercially, so like for us to go on. So those are the companies he owns. He's, he's a rich guy. Um, he actually got divorced this past July, and when he divorced his wife, he actually gave her 83 million, I'm sorry, $83 billion in Amazon shares as part of the divorce contract. She became one of the richest women alive because of that. I think she's 22nd. And he's still the richest man after $83 billion of wealth went to her. What's this guy's perspective on wealth? What's his outlook on life and success? Well, here's one quote I found from Bezos on everydaypower.com, which I don't frequently visit. <laughs> but I found it. It says this. He says, life's too short to hang out with people who aren't resourceful. Life's too short to hang out with people who aren't resourceful. That's his perspective. Life's short, so don't hang around with people who are going to slow you down. 
I mean, that's, that's quite a perspective, and it seems to be working for him in terms of his finances, but certainly not for his marriage. Seems like maybe his wife was slowing him down. He said, you know what? You're not resourceful. He's living by his own wisdom. Bezos is a rich guy with a godless perspective of life. But Bezos isn't the only rich guy with a perspective on life. The proverb we read this morning was written by an even richer guy. Proverbs 1.1 tells us that these sayings and Proverbs were written by Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Solomon had an empire of his own. I mean, this dude ruled a lot. He, at the very peak, he ruled at the very peak of Israel's wealth and glory. And 2 Chronicles 9 tells us that Solomon's annual gold revenue, so just what he got every year, was 666 talents. I didn't know how much that was. ESV Bible says 22 tons of gold every year coming in. That's his annual income, just in gold. There's also silver and a ton of bronze, too, and spices and all sorts of things. But according to lovemoney.com, which I, again, don't often visit, <laughs> current economists and historians estimate that Solomon's peak wealth, right, at his very, very tip of his glory, was worth $2 trillion. That's 18 Jeff Bezos. That's, that's a lot. And... Solomon wasn't just blessed with wealth. He had wisdom. 2 Chronicles 9, 22 through 23 says this, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches, no kidding, and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Jeff Bezos might be rich, but he's a rich guy with a godless perspective on life. King Solomon is a much richer guy, but with a God-inspired perspective on life. Both Bezos and Solomon understand the brevity of life. They recognize it's short. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death. Death is coming. Life is short. And yet they both recognize this brevity, and yet their perspectives of wealth couldn't be farther apart. Bezos looks only at this life. Solomon looks beyond. And today, we're going to learn that wisdom gives us a perspective of wealth that looks beyond this life. And we're going to do that by looking at three aspects of wisdom's perspective on money. Uh, for today's structure, for my outline, I, I borrowed really heavily from Ray Ortland Jr.'s um, commentary on Proverbs, uh, so I want to give him some credit. Um, I've modified it a bit, but that was kind of where I pulled some of that. Um, so we'll just go ahead and just get started right away. We're going to start with the first aspect of wisdom's perspective on money, which is that God made money to be a blessing. God made money to be a blessing. Proverbs affirms this. Just a few verses back, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it says this, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And notice here, first of all, that this is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. It's not, it's not just the blessing of being rich. It's the blessing of the Lord. The Lord, that's, that's the covenant name of God to his people. That's Yahweh, Israel's Savior. That's who's in view here. And this isn't just some, some mere general blessing. No, it's, it's this covenantal God who's committed to his people. The blessing of that God makes rich. He enjoys providing abundantly to his people. And why does he do that? 
It's an expression of his generosity. He loves, he enjoys giving to his people. He's the God of the universe, and he can give whatever he wants to whomever he wants. He enjoys doing it. He adds no sorrow with it. Being generous isn't something that God hates to do or is reluctant to do. He enjoys doing it. He owns everything. He isn't stingy or tight-fisted. It's his pleasure to give freely. Now, this does not mean that every believer is going to be materially wealthy, right? The scriptures speak plenty on the idea of the righteous poor. Uh, just consider Ruth. Uh, she and her, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, were both committed to following the Lord, um, and yet, uh, you know, and even had gone back to the land of promise during a time of famine, they said, hey, let's go back to Israel. We hear this bread. They were trusting themselves to the Lord. And yet they were so poor, Ruth had to go to other people's fields walking behind the workers who had already gathered up most of the wheat, and she had to go and glean little pieces. Like, that's really humbling. I don't often think about what Ruth is doing. We just hear she gleaned in the fields. That's like, I don't know what the good example of that would be. That'd be like going to a dinner after everyone's eaten and being like, hey, hey, are you done with that? Can I have that? I don't have any food at home. Can I take that home? That's really humbling. So that she depended entirely on people's wealth. She wasn't, she wasn't rich, that's for sure. But she was righteous, so she was righteous and poor. And yet, although she was poor, God provided for her and all of her needs. That's God's desire, to provide for our needs. So God made money as both a means of provision and as an opportunity to trust him, just like Ruth did, right? She trusted the Lord to provide for her. God enjoys providing for us not just because he's generous, though that's one of his motivations, but he also enjoys it because of the opportunity it gives us to trust God both for provision and then with the provision he provides. So we're going to look at each of those one at a time, trusting him for provision and trusting him with provision. So we are to trust God for provision. Again, this, this God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He wants us, his creatures, to depend on him for provision. That's right. It's fair. It's good. He doesn't want us to fret or to worry about whether he'll provide for our needs, including our financial needs, okay? And Jesus, Jesus speaks to this, uh, this idea of us being dependent upon God for all of our needs in Luke 12, 27 through 28. There he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon... And all his glory, his $2 trillion glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today, alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Question. Who here on the drive-in noticed that blade of grass that's right between the concrete and the asphalt, you know, at Sable and Evans. You know the one, that little piece, right? Okay, who, who knew? Okay, Dan noticed. Okay, good job, Dan. See, see he's, been, he's been studying. Who knows that that got cut down by a weed whacker this weekend? Right? No one notices that. It's, it's tiny. God notices that. He says, I notice the, the, the grass that gets thrown in the oven tomorrow. If God clothes the grass, how much more will he clothe you? So when rent is due again, 
and your electricity bill is tripled because of the terrible heat this summer, and you don't know how to make ends meet, trust the God who clothes the grass to provide for you. He will. He loves to do it. He's willing to do so, and to do so without adding any sorrow to it. Honor God by trusting him to provide for your needs. Now, this trust is different, okay, than a, than a laid-back attitude. It's, it's possible to be lazy or careless and just think, oh, he's going to provide for my needs. My family works hard, and I'll just sit around, you know, play video games all day. Believe me, that does not honor God, okay? That is not trust. That's laziness. But if we're working hard, right, if we're planning appropriately, if we're seeking the counsel of others, we have nothing more to do than just to trust that God will provide for our needs. He's honored by us trusting in him as our creator and sustainer. So trusting God for provision is one of the ways in which he intended for money to be a blessing. That's a blessing. When we trust him, we are blessed in that. But not only are we designed to trust God for provision, we're also designed to trust him with the thing he's provided us with. That is, we're to trust God with the provision he gives us. So think about this. If, If we trust God for provision, right, and see him as our source, it should totally make sense for us to trust him with that, right? If this is from him, it shouldn't be hard to give it back to him because it came from him in the first place. It's right for us to honor the Lord in this way. Proverbs 3, just a few chapters back, verses 9 and 10, tell us one way we can honor the Lord in this fashion. Proverbs 3 says this, verse 9. Honor the Lord, again, Yahweh, with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, honoring God with our money doesn't guarantee material wealth, as proponents of the prosperity gospel would say. But there is real blessing in giving to the Lord as we entrust him with what he's given us. Think about it. If, if the God who, who provides everything for us, right, if he, if he does that for us, doesn't it make sense to entrust everything with him? Uh, just a few verses earlier in the same chapter in Proverbs, which is more of like a psalm, so it actually it is a unit together. Uh, verse 5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. To trust God with our heart entails trusting him with our money. We could, we could maybe paraphrase this verse and say, Trust in the Lord with all your finances, and lean not on your own budgeting. Right Now, now budgeting is good. Okay, and it's a means by which we practice self-control and set good priorities. But our budgets first need to be determined by God's priorities, not ours. So what does this trust look like? Well, Proverbs 3 says it looks like honoring him with the first fruits of our produce. And first fruits are just what they sound like. They're the very first of everything you make. That's our gross income before car payments or electricity bills or even taxes. Right? It's the very first thing he's given to us. And why does he want the first of what we make? Well, express his trust in him. If it says, well, well, I have to actually, sorry, I have some money that needs to go to the government first, and I need to pay off my car, I need to pay my rent. Okay, Lord, I trust you with this much. And he's saying, all of what I give you, I want you to trust me with. He delights in our giving because of the trust it puts in our hearts towards him. It develops trust in our hearts. Now, some might ask, how much am I supposed to give? Right? Okay, give me a number, Todd. Well, the answer biblically 
is generously. That's how much we're supposed to give. Generously. Which probably means a minimum of 10% of your gross income. I'm going to challenge you to that. Now, that number, 10%, is not from the New Testament. You can't find a specific verse that says it there. It's from the Mosaic Law. Okay? The idea comes from that. But the covenant in Christ's blood calls us to be more generous, not less than what Moses did. The, tithe, the tithing of that, that old covenant lays a foundation of, of a few things. It's, it makes us intentional, right? We're, we're doing this. That's right. I'm setting aside this much money. It's consistent. I'm going to do it every single time. My, my produce comes in or I get the paycheck that comes in. And of generous giving. You know what, Lord? I can entrust that you will provide enough for me to live on 90% or less of everything you give me. All those principles that existed in the Old Testament still exist today. And in fact, they apply to everyone. Okay, could, you could be young, you could be old, you could be rich, you could be poor. They still apply to you. Are you a 14-year-old girl who, who does babysitting and makes a little bit of money? Honor God by tithing. That shows trust in him. Maybe you're getting by on minimum wage. Entrust yourself to God by giving to his church. No one's exempt from the command to entrust God with what he's given us, and no one's exempt from the blessing it brings when we do. That's because God wants each of us to experience more of him as we trust him with everything he gives us. If you're a believer and you haven't been doing this and you're feeling some conviction, first of all, that's good. The Holy Spirit's at work. I would encourage you to repent. Okay? God is gracious to forgive us. Accept Christ's forgiveness. That's what God sent him to do. And then press on in cheerful giving. For as, as 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. He wants to see that in you. He wants to see Christ in you. So we see that God has made money a blessing. He loves to watch us trust him with it. But despite the fact that God made money a blessing, we've corrupted this. We've corrupted his good plan for money, and we've spoiled his blessing. That brings us to the second aspect that Proverbs gives us, about money, which is that we make money a curse. Though God intended for it to be a blessing, we in our sin make it a curse. We sin against God by trusting in money instead of trusting in God. Instead of seeing God as the provider of all our needs, we begin to rely on our incomes. And Proverbs has something to say about those who trust in their finances. Proverbs 11, back to where we were pretty close. Proverbs 11, verse 28 says this. Whoever trusts, trusts in his riches, will fall. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So while, while God loves to abundantly bless and even make rich, as we saw earlier, he does not delight in his creation putting their trust in those riches rather than in him. Um, in fact, instead of adding no sorrow with it, like we saw earlier, here it says that God will make them fall. The, the righteous, I'm sorry, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. God opposes those, opposes those who trust in something other than himself. And when it comes to money, there's two ways in which we fail to trust God. As we saw earlier, God intends for us to trust in both for provision, right, and then with provision, and we fail in both these arenas. We're going to look at these one at a time. First, we fail to trust God for provision. Instead of finding security in God for provision, 
we often place our hope for security in money. Now, if you're financially well off, that could look like one thing. It can, it can be all too easy to rest on those numbers that you have in your savings account or your checking account. And, and maybe you really enjoy seeing that, that money being saved up and grow and watching your interest rate you know, rise. And you're like, okay, here we go. Now, that's not a bad desire, but sometimes our heart can lead us astray into trusting our bank accounts more than trusting in God. And you might be finding yourself saying, you know what, Joe, you've done a really good job, right? Look at, look, look at your great saving habits. You know, I, I clip coupons and I never get that drink at the, at the store when everyone else is getting, you know, a drink and guacamole and chips. You know, you've done a really good job. If only others could learn from you, right? The only other reason, the only reason other people are poor is because they're irresponsible, right? If they were like me, they wouldn't be in the spot they're in. That's one temptation. Perhaps you're just getting by. You're on the other side of the spectrum. And you're working three part-time jobs. And you're tired of Joe and all of his, you know, his comments about saving. Because he doesn't have four hungry mouths to feed at home. right? And you're tempted to disbelieve that God's going to provide for you and for your family. And you might be, you might be tempted to, to interpret the law loosely a little bit on your tax returns and and decide not to report those tips that you earned last year. Because you thought, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. No one really does that. And, you know, certainly God understands, right? Or you might be able to justify that in your position. You know what? Uh, I couldn't possibly give to the church. No, because if, if God would provide more, sure, that makes sense. I would do that. But just not in these circumstances. It's not possible. No one would rightly ask that of me. That would be wrong. That's another temptation. Scripture both speaks to the rich person who's relying on their wealth and the poor person Who's, who's scared of losing it. Proverbs 30 includes a prayer to God in which the writer makes this request in verse 8. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. The heart of the righteous person is to be dependent upon God. He, he, he fears the temptations that, that wealth brings, whether, whether wealth or poverty. And, and he's, he's afraid of denying God, making a name for himself, or, or compromising his morals in those financially tricky situations. That's the righteous heart. What is your heart towards God? Do you fret about next month's income? Do you only remember God when that checking account goes below that specific threshold you like? You know, as long as it's above that number, you're pretty good, and it goes below, oh, shoot, oh, Lord, help, I need, I need income. Or are you in constant dependence upon the only one who can provide for your daily needs? Do you praise God when he meets your needs on a regular basis? Do you grumble against him when it seems like you don't have enough? Our attitude towards money reveals our attitude towards God. And if you're convicted of putting a little, just, just a little faith in God and, and much more faith in money, again, repent. God's ready and willing to forgive you. He doesn't want to see you fall. Those who trust in riches will fall. He doesn't want that. He wants you like the righteous person to flourish like a green leaf. So put your trust in the God who loves to bless and provide for his people. But not only do we fail to trust God for provision, we also fail to trust God with provision. 
And that's the second way we make money into a curse. We fail to trust God with provision. We, when we fail to see God as the, as the provider of our finances, we, we fail to see him, or ourselves rather, as mere stewards of what he's given. And it leads to two extremes. It leads us to stinginess and to gluttony. Now, both stinginess and gluttony are rooted in the same idea, that my money is my money, not God's money. We forget that all that we have is on loan from God. God makes this statement in Psalm 50. He speaks. He says, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. That's God, the creator, saying, I own everything. Everything you have, everything I've given you, it's for me. And, and we as creatures think somehow that our, that our money is out of his reach or out of his domain or you know, kind of our personal, hey, no, Lord, this is, this is what I'm supposed to you know, rule and, and you do your God stuff. No, we're fools if we're thinking that. Both stinginess and gluttony operate on this false thinking. Now, unfortunately, I regularly fall into the sin of gluttony. That's my go-to. I think that I can just use my money however I want without considering the discretion of others or any other factors. And back in March, um, while Becca and I were still engaged, uh, we decided to go to an arcade. thought this was going to be fun. Becca is, is, is being adventurous, trying something new. Um, I'm excited to splurge a little bit. I enjoy doing that. Um, and when we approached the counter to buy credits, um, we you know, briefly discussed, okay, how much are we going to buy? Make sure we have a good budget. And I thought we were on the same page. I thought, okay, here we go. 25 credits, great. I go up to the counter, and I ask, hey, um, you know, can we have 25 credits? Um, and the cashier says, 25 credits each. And I'm thinking, yes, I'm about to say that until I you know, glance over at Becca and I'm getting a no. <laughs> so at the moment I realize, oh, we are not on the same page. We are in fact thinking of two very different numbers. In fact, mine's double what she's thinking. <laughs> but in my pride, I quickly decided to say, yeah, yeah, I've got this. I thought, we can afford this, we're splurging. Right? We're having fun, we're on a date. I did not take the time to heed my fiance's counsel, but rather acted on the impulse that I could spend my money however I wanted to. And my sin of gluttony tainted the rest of that evening. I later had to repent to Becca, and she graciously forgave me, as she always does, for which I am very grateful. What was going on in my heart at that moment, though? I thought, this is what I want. I have the money for it. I don't need anyone's advice. But in reality, there was... There was someone very important who I should have listened to, my fiance. Um, I thought I could use money how I pleased, but it didn't dawn on me, you know, that the Becca, as my future wife, would kind of inherit the consequences of all of my gluttonous choices in the past. That's a humbling thought. I failed to love my fiance, and I failed to honor God. Rather than trusting in God with the provision that He gave me, I trusted myself, I took it in my own hands. Maybe you're tempted to be gluttonous like me. Or perhaps you're, tended to be, or you're perhaps you're tempted to be stingy. Either way, we must acknowledge that all we have belongs to God and trusting him with the very money he's graciously given us. So we've seen that God intended money to be a blessing, to be a means by which we worship and honor him, and yet in our sin, we've turned that blessing into a curse toward ourselves. We fail to trust God to provide for us, and we fail to steward all the resources that he's given us. 
spiritually, that leaves us in a really bad spot. God commands our worship, and instead we functionally worship our paycheck or our savings account. Thankfully, wisdom has more to say about wealth than the fact that we abuse it. Wisdom promises us a better hope than financial security, and it lifts our gaze above our finances and our wicked hearts back to the God who provides for us, not just materially, but spiritually. And that brings us to the third aspect of wisdom's perspective on money, which is that wisdom promises true riches. Let's listen to wisdom's call in Proverbs 8, 18 through 21. Proverbs 8, 18 through 21 says, this is wisdom speaking, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. I mean, that, that's quite an invitation. That's, that's wisdom, tapping into our internal desires for, for wealth and abundance and security. And according to these verses, wisdom promises us riches, wealth, and inheritance, filled treasuries. I mean, that sounds like a really good deal to me. Um, sign me up for that. I want that. That sounds good. But how does wisdom make good on this promise? That's a big promise to make. How does it make good? Certainly, not all those who are righteous are wealthy. We've seen that before. So how does, how does wisdom offer such grand wealth? Well, note that wisdom promises enduring wealth. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. These are riches that won't dissolve when the next unexpected medical bill comes. And it's not wealth that, that's at the mercy of your car that's just about to break down. No, it's, it's wisdom offers an enduring wealth. And, and while all earthly possessions will fade away, wisdom's wealth will not. Now, Jesus speaks to wealth and its enduring effect in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Sooner or later, everything on this earth will eventually come to ruin. I think of the time uh, where I was helping my, my dad clean his basement because it had been flooded with sewage. Um, the sewer lines had become so clogged with roots, uh, it had backed up, it had, it had overflowed both the shower and the toilet, had just poured out all across the floor in the basement um, and just soaking the basement carpet. I remember when you walked in the carpet, it, just, it squished underneath you. And it's not just water, it's sewage, it's gross. And as my dad and I just vacuumed up the sewer water, we were cutting out carpet, throwing everything away that had gotten spoiled. We just kept reminding ourselves, you know, one day, it's all going to burn. <laughs> that was vividly clear in my mind. Now, whether or not it's all going to burn, okay, that's a different sermon, okay? But while my dad and I were cleaning up we, we, uh, that sewage-soaked basement, we, we had a, a vivid picture uh, of the truth of Jesus' words. This wealth that the world has to offer won't endure. All the wealth in this life is temporary. But wisdom offers enduring wealth. Wealth that isn't corrupted by moth or rust 
or sewer water, wealth that lasts beyond this life, wealth that doesn't run out or run low like our savings accounts, wealth that looks beyond the gift to the giver himself. What, what is this wealth that wisdom offers? It offers us riches in Christ. That's the wealth that wisdom offers. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ, the divine Son of God, was perfectly rich in the presence of God the Father. And yet he descended to this earth, taking the form of a man, becoming impoverished by taking on both humanity and our guilt, and the guilt of all of our, all of our stinginess, all of our, all of our greed, all of our pride, all of our anxiety. And he was willing to accept the debt that we incurred because of our guilt, the debt that we owe to God. And instead, he credited all those who believe in him with his infinite wealth. And to make us rich, Christ had to become poor. For the only wages that we had earned from God was death. By dying on the cross, Christ paid that debt of death for all who believe in him. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's the wages of sin, death. But the free, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the wealth that wisdom offers. Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the free gift God gives when we repent of our sins, and that's how it comes to us. We just repent. We say, here's all my wrong actions, words, thoughts, motives, heart, and we trust in Christ alone as the one who can pay our debt to God. And if you're here, and, and if you're not sure if you're trusting God to pay that debt, you've heard this truth again and again, and you're not quite sure where you're at I ask you, consider, consider trusting him to pay your debt to God. You can't. It's enormous. It's unpayable. Sin only leads to death, but God's free gift leads to eternal life. Trust in Christ today, I pray. And if this sounds like a good deal to you, I'd say you're right. And please come talk to me or, or to Pastor Dan after the sermon. We'd love to chat more with you. It's the greatest gift we've been given. Um, now, if you're already trusting in Christ's riches to forgive your debt, then rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the fact that he gave you a free gift of eternal life in himself. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, and he redeems us from our bondage to sin, our bondage to trusting in earthly riches, and our bondage to death. And God in his kindness gave money to be a blessing, and he loves for his creatures to, to, to take delight in him by rightly worshiping the provider of all of our needs. And yet we, we fail to honor God as we should. We trust in his gifts instead of in him. And we look to our finances for security instead of the God of the universe to do so. And in doing so, we, we incur a debt that we could never repay, never repay. But God, being rich in mercy, gave his own son being rich in mercy. He is rich with mercy. He gives us his son to secure for us a wealth that endures beyond this life and into eternity. That's a good return on your investment. God provided the one in whom we must put our trust for everlasting life. 
Wisdom gives us a perspective of wealth that looks beyond this life. It lifts our gaze from earthly trinkets to eternal treasures. And wisdom frees us from the poverty of trusting in riches rather than the, the blessing of trusting in God. As we read at the very beginning, remember that teaser trailer, Proverbs 11:4, riches do not profit on the day of wrath. That's what's coming, a day of wrath. Riches don't profit. But righteousness, the righteous one, delivers from death. Sin earns God's wrath, and that wrath leads to death. The only escape from our spiritual poverty is to trust the righteous one who delivers us from that death. Life is short. The founder of Amazon understood that. But rather than seeking to store up treasures on earth, wisdom calls us for a hope that looks beyond the grave. It calls us to find true riches and life in the only one who can provide them. So I ask... Where is your trust today? In worldly riches or in a heavenly inheritance? In finances of the God who provides those finances? Entrust yourself and all that God gives you to the one who, according to Philippians 4.19 says, will supply every need of yours. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we incurred an unpayable debt in our sin, in our, in our lack of trusting you, Lord, as we put our hope in what we have instead of the one who gives it to us. Lord, sin offends you. Those who trust in riches will fall, and yet, Lord, you have brought us up from the pit because you've made Christ come down to deliver us from our death. And so we thank you for all that Christ has done. We thank you for the fact that he became poor, that we might become rich, to receive his eternal riches that he has given us graciously. We thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us in him. And so we worship him now. We praise you that he has has taken taken our debt and given us a wealth before you. So we pray that you would, you would keep our hearts in, in constant praise and, and a trust that looks to you to provide for our daily needs. If you give up your son, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? I pray that you would help us believe this as we go throughout our weeks. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.